Good morning. How are you doing? Good to be together this morning. Uh, if you are new here, a uh, special welcome to you. Welcome here. Uh, glad you're with us. Uh, SunWest exists to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus. Uh, that's what we're all about. So I pray as you uh, lean in here that you would encounter more of Jesus. Uh, if uh, you are interested in taking next steps at SunWest, uh, there'll be some information on the back end of the service. But uh, as of this morning, you can go to the Welcome Center uh, and fill out a welcome card. We've got a gift for you. And and uh, allows us to meet you and also for you to meet us a little bit more formally. So we invite you to go there after the service. If you call SunWest home, uh, glad uh, to be with you again. And we just want to encourage you to continue to pray and consider what God would have you give uh, financially here at SunWest. And there's lots of ways to give. You can do that at the Welcome Center as well, but you can also give that online. Uh, and uh, you can do that on the app. So there's an app that we have. You just go to Church Center uh, on the App Store, and you download that app, and it'll ask you to select the church in your area. It'll say SunWest, uh, and then you can click on that. And then from that app, you have access to all the events and everything going on at SunWest, things to sign up for, ways to give, uh, all of that good stuff. Uh, so we're going to jump right in this morning. At the end of the service, uh, we're going to have some communion time, a, a little bit more time as we worship and sing together. Uh, and so if you're joining us at home, uh, you might want to grab some bread uh, or something out of the, the cupboard uh, to join us in communion uh, at the end of the service. We are on week three of our reconstruction series, Questioning Your Faith Without Losing It. Uh, sorry, if you're in junior high, almost always forget that. Grade six to eight, uh, you can go into the foyer uh, by the Welcome Center, and you'll have a junior high leader there uh, that will uh, lead you into junior high conversations. So reconstruction, uh, we've been looking at this idea of questioning your faith without losing it. And it's kind of in response to, uh, you know, a word that's been gaining traction, not just a word, but a movement that's been gaining traction for a number of years in the North American world. And again, we've stressed this every week, that this is a Western phenomenon. This is not really happening in other places in the world. Uh, but in the Western world, in North America, Europe, uh, this is uh, something that is happening, this idea of deconstruction, which means uh, a pulling apart of, of something. And when we apply that to faith, when we apply that to theology, what we're really saying is we're pulling apart the things that I used to believe, the things that I built up, that I thought were true, and now I'm questioning those things that I previously held dear. Uh, and so it can, it can be quite a disorienting thing to deconstruct. Uh, but there's a difference between deconstruction and destruction. And so last week we said the motive matters. And so whatever your motive is for doing that actually has a big role to play in whether you're deconstructing uh, on the way to a reconstruction or if you're just destroying, uh, maybe you're hurt, you're angry, or something has happened to you. And it might be for very good reasons why you're, you want to destroy everything, uh, but that process of destruction is very different than deconstruction. And so deconstruction, when it's done well, when it's done holistically, when it's been done in the way that people have been doing it throughout history, because this is not a new phenomenon to our time, it's been happening throughout history for anybody that's had faith, is how do we continue to process and question and understand God, truth, the Bible, faith, who I am in light of who God is, uh, you know, all of these things are questions that people have been asking through history. And because we're not God, necessarily that means that we don't understand the whole picture, that there's going to be things as we grow through our lives that push us outside of the boxes or outside of, if we want to use the theme of construction, outside of the houses of faith that we've constructed. And we'll have to rebuild 
and rethink some things. That is natural. And so that natural, healthy process uh, we've described in this way, the, uh, that we all construct the theological house, theology, how I think about myself and God. And then we all go through a season where we have to rethink things as we go through life. That's this process of deconstruction. But it's step two in a larger journey of, construct, of reconstruction. And so as we go around the cycle and we go through this a number of times in our lives, instead of going around and around like a merry-go-round, think of it as a helix. And the more we go around, uh, we are not in the same place every time we come back to the, the, that same point. Uh, so if you think of a helix like a staircase or a screw, uh, as it goes around, it's either going higher, as in the case of a staircase, as it's going around, it's going deeper, as in the case of a screw. And so this is the process of faith. And I would say this is the healthy process of faith growth, of spiritual growth that we all go in. As we go around, we go deeper and deeper. And again, if your intention is to know God, uh, to walk with God, and recognize that in, in a posture of humility that you don't understand everything, this can be a very, very profound and deep and meaningful journey to, uh, as we go around and go deeper into our faith. So weeks one and two... We basically looked at points one and two. We looked at the idea of how, what is involved in the pieces that we use to construct our theological house. Uh, we looked at our culture and the things we assumed last week that all have a, a, a role to play in how we think and perceive the world. We looked at the reasons uh, why we go from one to two. We looked at the reasons... Uh, whether it's through our culture, our own experiences, or things that happen, that we have to rethink everything that we've previously con- constructed. So if, you have, if you're just joining us this week, you can go back to weeks one and two, where we talk about those two steps in this process. But today and next week, I want to talk about reconstruction. We're going to look at some of the pieces that I believe are necessary for us to reconstruct well. And so if we're honest, like we talked about last week, let's be honest about why we're deconstructing. And then if we can get back to the heart of wanting to draw near to God, wanting to walk in our life with God, wanting to be a person of faith, we can reconstruct really, really well. And so the topic for today is holding the faith when you don't have faith. Holding the faith when you don't have faith. And I trust that this title is going to make sense as we go through this morning. And I want to begin by talking about doubting Thomas, because I can't really do a series on doubt, on questions, without talking about the quintessential character of doubt in the New Testament, doubting Thomas. Uh, So doubting Thomas, this is his nickname that he's gotten uh, because of his doubts. And I think Thomas has got a bad rap. He's become the famous doubter. But the reality is that all of the disciples went through a process of doubt. It wasn't just Thomas, but Thomas is kind of singled out in a particular story. And because of that story, we have coined him with this title, Doubting, Doubting Thomas. Uh, but if all the disciples were honest, they could have been Doubting Peter, Doubting John. Uh, they, they, they all could have had that title at some point in their lives, but Thomas is the one that we've kind of put that on him. And so I want to look at that story, the Doubting Thomas story. And I think there's something about that story that, that actually brings us into the space to understand what it means to reconstruct well, to not stop at our doubts, to not stop at our questions, to not stop at the things that we're having a difficult time with, but to continue to move through that helix of faith. And so this is the Doubting Thomas story. It's found at the end of the Gospel of John, and that's one of four books. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are written about the life and the ministry of Jesus uh, from different perspectives. And and so in John's book, we, we have the story about 
Thomas. So on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, everybody say together. They were all together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came. So this is after the the death of Jesus, after the resurrection of Jesus. They hadn't encountered Jesus yet. So Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So all the disciples were together. And when the disciples were all together, Jesus shows up, shows them his hands, shows them his side because his hands were where the nails went through when he was on the cross, the side where the spear went through. And they could see that Jesus' physical body still bore the scars and the marks of that crucifixion day. And so he he stood among the disciples and displayed himself and his body to them. And, and so it was quite a phenomenal moment in the life of the disciples. And so when all the disciples were together, this happened, except there was one problem. Not all the disciples were together because there was one missing. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, uh, which means twin. Uh, and so I don't know if that means that Thomas had a literal twin. That's likely what it means. There might have been a twin brother of Thomas. Uh, but I think this is also a good way to think about Thomas and a good way to think about ourselves. Uh, and I don't know about you, uh, but there's times in my life where I feel like I can be two different people, that there's like the faith me and then there's the doubting me. There's the, the confident me, there's, there's the questioning me. And we see this kind of duplicity in Thomas, but I think that reflects all of us in some way. We all have this twin. And so, so Thomas has this this aspect of faith, of being with Jesus, of wanting to believe, but he also had this other side where he has a hard time believing. And so we'll see this kind of twin aspect of Thomas. So Thomas, known as Didymus, the twin, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So they were all there, but Thomas was missing. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, where something happens in a place that you weren't with a bunch of people that you weren't with and you were the one that wasn't there. And you, and you think, you know, you got FOMO. Fear missing out. And anybody can relate to FOMO? Okay, I get it all the time. Yeah, I want to hear certain, I'm like, ah, I, I wasn't there. Uh, maybe you weren't invited. Uh, maybe you just couldn't make it because of your schedule, but you feel like, ah, that moment. This would, have, this would have been one of those moments where you were like, I wish I would have been there. And so Thomas is back with all of his friends, and they're talking about that, that whole event that happened that you weren't there for. And you can imagine where that kind of leaves you. Well, you feel left out. You feel like you're missing out. You feel like they have now a shared experience that you don't have. And then you end up asking questions like, why, why then? Why did that have to happen then? I mean, I was with, I'm with those guys all the time. But, you know, the 99 times I'm with them out of 100, that one time I wasn't with them, this event happens. So why them? Why now? Why did that happen to them and not to me? Why did they get to experience that and I didn't get to experience that? Why did that person get healed when they prayed? And no matter how hard we prayed for that person that I love, they didn't get healed. Why does that person have such a hard time or had such an easy time having faith and trust in God. And here I am in all my doubts and my questions and I'm struggling. I wish I was more like them. Why did they get to have that profound experience with God? And I feel like I'm living in a desert. I mean, this experience for Thomas, let's be real, is, is all of our experiences at some point in our life of faith. God, why them and not me? Why at that time and not at this time? 
How come I couldn't have been a part of it? Thomas's story was different than their story. I mean, God was going to do something different in Thomas's life, but at this point in his story, he just feels that he misses out, that he feels like everybody else has kind of had this faith journey and experience that he doesn't get to have. And so he's listening to them talk about it, and they're telling him, we've seen the Lord, and, uh, and this leaves Thomas in a precarious position. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas wants what they had. Because remember, they got to see the hands of Jesus. They got to see the side of Jesus. And this is really what Thomas is saying. He's echoing back to them the story that they told him. We saw Jesus' hands. We saw Jesus' side. And he's saying, unless I see Jesus' hands, unless I see Jesus' side, I'm not going to believe. Unless what happened to you gets to happen to me, then I'm not going to believe. And Thomas is reluctant to believe. And this is understandable because Thomas had been following Jesus for the last three years. Thomas put his hope and expectations onto this leader. And everything that he thought he was going to get out of this time that he spent, this investment of time, he, I mean, he left everything to follow Jesus. And what did, where did it leave him? At the end of three years, it left him with a dead Messiah. And so you can understand for Thomas, it's like, why would I believe? Why would I trust? How, where has that gotten me in my life? I left my career. I left my family. I put everything in to follow Jesus. And it, let, it led me to this place where Jesus is dead. And I'm not going to easily jump back on that wagon because I've already been duped. I've already wasted enough time. Maybe you've had faith for a long time, been at church for a long time. But maybe as that time has gone on, you've experienced significant hurt disappointment, rejection, previously held convictions that you, that you held so tightly to, but those things ended up letting you down in some way. And you're thinking, like Thomas, fool me once, shame on me, but fool me twice. Or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I'm not going to be fooled twice. I'm not going to be fooled again. And so we, we have this reluctance, like Thomas, to believe, to put our trust in God again. So Thomas had to deconstruct what he previously assumed and what he thought was true. Thomas, like the rest of the disciples, if you didn't know this, didn't expect Jesus to die on the cross. They didn't expect that. None of them did. This wasn't in their worldview. This wasn't in their understanding. Even though Jesus had tried to tell them multiple times that, hey, this is going to happen, they still didn't get it. And when it happened, they all, you know, kind of left in some form and they were all surprised in some form. So Thomas, like the other guys, were severely disappointed disoriented, and they had to deconstruct on some level everything they presumed before this point in their story. So Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless this happens, unless I see. And those two words, I see, I mean, we talked about postmodernism last week. You know, I don't know if there's any two words that are more postmodern than this. Thomas is very postmodern. He's saying, unless I, me as an individual, unless this happens to me specifically, I will not believe. And unless I see, unless there's empirical ev evidence, unless I have an experience for myself, I can't believe. Unless I have an autonomous experience, a self-law, unless I can figure this out for myself, I can't believe. So Thomas had a really hard time just believing based on the witness of the, the disciples, and he needed something for himself. 
Then the story continues. A week later, everybody say a week later. His disciples in the house, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas, the difference was this time Thomas was with them. A week later. Now again, like I said, Thomas gets a bad rap and we give him, you know, he's gotten a lot of flack over the years for being a doubter. Uh, But like I said, I think the other disciples were in the same boat. Uh, I appreciate Thomas. I mean, he's one of my favorite characters in the gospel, even though, you know, we don't know much about him, but we have this story and I love this story. And the reason I love this story is because there's a part of me that I see in Thomas. There's a part of this, this didymus, this twin nature that in this process and this transformation that he goes through that I see in Thomas. And, and so Thomas gets a bad rap because of his doubt, but I don't think Thomas gets enough credit for this. Thomas doesn't get enough credit for staying with them. A week later, Thomas was with them. And so, yes, Thomas is disappointed. He's frustrated. He's disoriented. He's trying to figure out what he believes, and he's listening to all the experiences of his friends. But Thomas did not let that push him away from his community. Thomas didn't let his doubts, his questions, his frustrations, his missing out, his lack of understanding push him away from the community that believed. A week later, you know, you can imagine that whole week goes on and the disciples are still talking about it. A week later, Thomas is like, ugh, you know, day after day is like, when, like, is that ever going to happen for me? And so I don't know if, if, I don't know if it matters if it was a day later, if it was a week later, if it was a month later, a year later. I think for sometimes in our lives, we can go for years. Maybe we can even go for decades and we, and we think, is that ever going to be my story? But the time in between, what do we do with the time in between? What do we do in the time in between our longings and the fulfillment of our longings? What do we do in the time in between the questions and the answers? What do we do in the time in between the doubt and the resurrection? What do we do in the time between deconstruction and reconstruction? I think what we do in the in-between matters a whole lot on whether we continue to go around the helix or whether we get off, this, off that train at stop two. Thomas chooses to stay in community. And I said this last year, and I'll say it again. When you don't know, don't go. When you have questions, you don't need to leave. When you don't know what to believe, you don't need to leave. In fact, the story of faith is a story of a... The story of the church is a story of a community of faith that wrestles together, that has questions together, that walks through the highs and the lows of life together. But the point is together. The community of faith is also a community of doubts. And as I said last week, faith and doubt are not opposites. We only assume faith and doubt are opposites because we think faith is about certainty. And if faith is the same thing as certainty, then faith and doubt are opposites. But that's not what faith is. Faith literally means trust. And so if faith is trust, faith and doubt are not opposites. In fact, the process of trust is a process of trusting. 
In relationships, our trust, it doesn't mean that you always trust the person 100% or you always know what's going on, but it's a process of learning. It's a process of leaning in. It's a process of actually processing your disappointments. When you don't know, you don't need to go. When you don't know what to believe, you don't need to leave. This is the story of the church. In any faith community that pushes you out because you have questions and doubts is not a faith community that I believe is being true to the way that Jesus works with us. Faith community should be that, a place to process doubts and questions. So if you ever felt pushed out because you had certain doubts or questions in your own faith background, I'm sorry for that, Uh, but that is not reflective of the heart of Jesus. Jesus leaves spaces for our doubts. We even talked about the last week at, at the end of Matthew 28, the disciples, after the resurrection, he sends them out with their doubts. They worshiped and they doubted. And Jesus said, all right, keep going. That's the community of faith. And so the story continues to kind of resolve the Thomas story. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord, my God. And so Thomas eventually did have this moment that he was longing for with God, which changed the trajectory of his life. And it took him a week. I'm sure that week felt like a long time. For many of us, maybe it feels like longer than a week. But I believe the principle remains. When you don't know, you don't need to go. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have seen and yet have believed, who have not seen, sorry, and yet have believed. And so Jesus is looking through the telescope of time, and he's, he's talking about us. You know, blessed is Thomas because he saw and believed, but blessed are those, blessed are you and me, who can actually put our trust in Jesus based on the eyewitnesses that were there. When you don't know don't go. Doubting Thomas stayed in the community of faith through his deconstruction moment, and that helped him turn the corner to a place of reconstruction. He had a constructed understanding that all blew up when Jesus died on the cross, and he had to hang on in that moment, in that season of in-between. That's what he chose to do. So what do you and I choose to do in that season, in that moment of in-between? And I don't think it's coincidence that he received what he needed from Jesus Not on his own, but in a gathering, in the gathered community, the faith community, that Jesus showed up in the context of a gathered community. And I know in my life that that is often how I turn the corner, is in the context of community. And so which brings us to a phrase that we say so often at SunWest, don't do life alone. Can we say that together? Don't do life alone. I mean, it can sound like a cliche phrase, but I really, really believe it. That if you're going to reconstruct well, if we're going to do the faith journey well, we do it together. We were created to do faith in community. Now, Christianity is a personal faith in that we, we all make personal choices. But just because it's a personal faith doesn't mean it's a private faith. Jesus never created this journey of faith to be done privately or to be done autonomously. 
Everything Jesus invites us to is into the community of God, the family of God, the body of Christ. These are the metaphors for the faith community that we see throughout scriptures, which means we do this together. Christian faith is something that we individually choose to believe in, but we don't choose what to believe. Now, this is critical because this gets missed in our postmodern time. We think that faith is something that we choose, and in that way, it's partially true. We choose to have faith, but if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you don't get to choose what you believe because the faith is actually handed down to you through the generations. We are not reinventing a new spirituality or a new faith. We are a part of what God has been doing throughout history, and we are joining in something that is already happening. And so we actually receive the faith from people that have gone before us. We receive the faith. We don't reinvent a new faith. And so on one hand, don't do life alone is true in the context of our physical, geographical space and time where we are right now. We do life together, yes. We journey together, yes. But don't do life alone is also true in the context of history, that we don't do life alone. We do life a part of the historic community of the church. We are part of a faith history. This is what Paul was saying when he wrote to Timothy. He said, they must keep hold of the deep truths of, what does the two words say? The faith. Paul's charging Timothy, you know, those people that you're leading, it doesn't say they must try and muster up the faith or they got to figure out their faith. This is not what he's saying. He's saying they have to take hold of the faith. They have to take hold of the thing that is being handed to them. Uh, Paul says it refers to this type of idea again. He says, so then brothers and sisters stand firm and hold fast to what? The teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So it's not a new idea. It's, it's the thing that Jesus established that the disciples and the church leaders were trying to pass along to the next generation, and, and they're being charged to hold on to the faith. We talk so much about my faith, your faith, and that's true because we have to talk about our own decisions to lean in and to trust, yes. But when we talk about my faith, it's not the faith that I invented. It's not the thing I wish for or I want or I would really like. It's, it's the faith that has been handed to me, first from Jesus to the disciples and then the disciples through the gathered faith community through history. And so what is being referred to when we talk about the faith and the teachings? So if we're going to reconstruct well, yes, we do it in the context of community, but we also do it in the context of the historical community and recognize that I am actually charged to cling to and hold on to something that's been handed to me. But what is that thing that is being handed down? This is the difference between uh, what is referred to as dogma and other things. So dogma or orthodoxy, or C.S. Lewis calls us mere Christianity, is the essence of what the faith is that is being handed to us from the historic community of faith. Dogma is the, are those Christian beliefs that have been passed down from the apostles to us today. When we believe in the gospel, when we believe in freedom from sin, when we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we believe in the Trinity, these things are dogma. These things are Christian faith that has been given first from Jesus to the disciples through history to us. 
And so outside of those things, there isn't a Christian faith. You might believe something else, but it's not Christian. That, that is what dogma or orthodoxy, and again, like, mere, uh, like C.S. Lewis said, mere Christianity, this is what the essence of the faith is. This has been established in what is known as, uh, you know, when, some, when the early church wrote a creed, this would be dogma. So uh, you think of the word creed, you know, uh, can you take me higher? You know, I just, no, seriously, I want you just to embrace what I'm going to say with arms wide open. Uh, Sorry, some of you guys, if you were a teenager in the 90s, you get it. If you weren't, it probably means nothing to you because they became irrelevant very quickly. But they're a big part of my life. Anyways, uh, so the creeds, the Christian creeds. So like, like I said, the resurrection, the death of Jesus, the Trinity, the centrality of Scripture, uh, these are pieces that have been handed down to us through the last 2,000 years that were given to the apostles that have been given to us. And so there's a number of, there, there's three creeds, that main creeds that we refer to in Christian history. Uh, and the creeds, again, are this foundational, these orthodoxy, this this. This dogma, if, we, if you were to say, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus, I affirm the things that Jesus passed along, then this is essentially the faith that we are talking about. And so the first creed that I want to refer to is the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed was built off the old Roman creed. And the old Roman creed existed as early as the first century. So we are talking about a statement of faith, a foundation of faith that people in the first century that were connected to the people that did life with Jesus, the apostles and the disciples, created some level of faith understanding of what the faith was that they were talking about. The Apostles' Creed, which was uh, formed in the church in the fourth century, was based, it's almost identical to the old Romans' Creed. And this is the written form of the creed that we have today in the church. And this is what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy, Script, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And by Catholic, I know some of you guys are freaking out. Uh, it just means universal, the global, the united church. Uh, not that united church. The, the, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Uh, that's why it's small c. Uh, the Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. And so in the scripture, we're talking about the faith, that we pass on the faith, that we hold to the faith, we cling to the faith, we need to protect the faith. This is essentially what we are talking about. This creedal belief, this creedal faith. Now, outside of this level of dogma, in what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus and embrace what he embraced, we have a level of doctrine And doctrine are things that remain important but aren't entirely necessary in terms of being identified as a follower of Jesus. 
And these things are very important, but they're different than dogma. So please hear me. I'm not saying these things aren't important, but they're not on the same level as dogma. So they might be things like understanding of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, baptism practices, you know, different ways that different traditions practice communion, things like women in ministry, things like understand our understanding of sexuality. Now, again, I'm not saying these things aren't important. I'm just saying if you read the dogma, the creedal statements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, these things are important but secondary. And third, we have something that theologians refer to as adiaphora, which is just a fancy Greek word that means indifferent. They're things that, you know, it doesn't, you know, who are the Nephilim in the Old Testament? You know, did, you know the one gospel has Jesus healing two blind people and the other one has him healing one. Is it two or is it one? Uh, did God create the world in seven days or did he create it over a long period of time over seven eras? I think I just pushed somebody's dogma. Um, I would say those things are on a level of they're interesting ideas. One way to think about these three categories, dogma, doctrine, adiaphora would be to say there's some things that are worth dying for. And to be clear, being willing to die for something isn't the same thing as being willing to kill for something, which I think our Western religious culture has gotten a little bit backwards. The early church were willing to die for something, which was, set, which was different than willing to kill for something. To follow the way of Jesus is being willing to die for something. This is the faith that was being handed down through the generations that there's some things that are worth dying for. <clears throat> there's some things that are worth dividing for. And I, I believe that. I, I, you know, I believe in the unity of the church, but there's a reality that on a doctrinal level, there are fundamental disagreements that Christians have. And it is hard to actually practice your faith together in a united community over different ideas. And I believe certain doctrines that other Christians don't believe. And those things are deal breakers for me. That Jesus was a peacemaker. That Jesus didn't come to conquer violence through violence, but through suffering. This is part of my core conviction. And that comes out of the faith tradition that I'm part of, yes. But I I have chosen to believe and come under that that part of faith, women in ministry. I believe that God has created both men and women to, to lead, to, to give the gifts, of the, the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not gender specific. I believe that with all of my heart. And I understand biblically that there's groups of Christians that say, you know, that's, you know, we read the Bible differently and that we agree to disagree. And I've had good friends that have left our community because of that disagreement. We divide over that. It doesn't mean I don't love them. It doesn't mean I don't bless them. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian. It just means that it's really difficult for us to do faith well together when we are in disagreement over some critical things. An understanding of human sexuality. There are, there are Christians that have different views on this. And I've had people that have left the church because I'm too liberal, or we, I should say we, because we're part of a a larger community of faith in our family of churches. We, you know, have a certain understanding of women in ministry. We also have a certain traditional, what some would say, too conservative understanding of human sexuality. And so some people divide over 
this. Some people divide over that. And these things are critically important, I believe, to how I understand what God wants to do in the world, how he's called us to live. But let's be clear. These things are doctrinal. These things are our best understanding of what we see in the scriptures and how we're trying to live it out together. And just because somebody has a different doctrinal view than you doesn't mean that they don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're not trying to be a part of the faith. And understanding the difference between these two, I think, is critical for the church as a united whole to continue to move forward in this world and have, uh, and have a witness. Jesus said when he was praying to God the Father, Father, help them be one as you and I are one, for the world will then know that you have sent me. Through the unity of the church, the Catholic church, the global church, people will know who Jesus is. And so we need to be clear on what is the thing that unites us. And then, as I said, there's things that we discuss. There's things that are interesting. There's things that, you know, you might be really, really, really passionate about. You know, I, I've met people that are super passionate about the literal seven days of creation. God bless their soul, and that's great. Uh, or vice versa. The, you know, it's, there's no way it's possible because of how I understand the world and science and geography and all that kind of stuff. And churches divide over things like that. And I'm like... To me, like this is not something that you divide over. This is an interesting discussion. It doesn't change who created the world. It doesn't change who God is. It doesn't even change the intent of the Genesis story that God was in the beginning and he created us in the image of God and that we have a purpose and a calling. All these things remain. And so there's things that we discuss that are interesting. There's things that we divide over because they're pretty critical to how we understand faith and how we practice. But there's things that we are willing to die over because this is the faith the faith that has been handed to us from Jesus to the apostles through the generations. I think a good image of this, A.J. Swoboda uses this image in his book, but um, is jazz, music. You could have a band up here playing together, and there, there has to be some level of agreement on what key that you're playing in. There has to be some level of agreement on what the tempo is. What the, rhythm, what the rhythm is, what the, what the formation of the song is, yes. But jazz is known for its high level of improvisation, creativity, complexities, yes. But all of that freedom, all of that improvisation, all that beauty of jazz is only possible when there's an agreed-upon foundation or movement that the band is going in together, if that makes sense. It's that agreed-upon piece that allows the freedom we cannot lovingly disagree if we have nothing to agree on. If the music illustration doesn't work for you, think of a sports illustration. You know, if there was no rules in sports, it's just complete chaos. You know, somebody's playing hockey, somebody's playing basketball. Somebody thought this was an individual sport. You know, they show up at the badminton racket. I don't know. It, it would just be pure chaos that there has to be some established order or agreement that this is the thing that we are gathering around. And this provides us with a united experience, a communal experience, something that we can participate in and say, I'm a part of that. <clears throat> so this is the faith that has been passed down through generations. Now, the Apostles' Creed, <clears throat> even though it's the, uh, as we have it, the oldest written <clears throat> creed that uh, many churches agree on, 
And I say many because out of the three kind of major Christian branches, the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Orthodox, uh, the Orthodox do not hold, just so you know, do not hold to the Apostles' Creed for various reasons. But the Nicene Creed, which is a later development than the Apostles' Creed, all three of those Christian branches affirm the Nicene Creed. Written a bit later than the Apostles' Creed, and it's the creed that the Protestants, the Catholics, the Orthodox Church can all affirm. They do all affirm. There's agreement. It's built off the Apostles' Creed, but it's actually fleshed out even a little bit further and more specifically. And I just wonder if sometimes, if we could just understand the difference between dogma and doctrine and interesting ideas. If that would actually allow freedom for unity, if that would allow freedom for reconstruction, because maybe what some people are figuring out that they have to leave the faith because of these doubts and the questions, if they understand what is the faith that we're actually talking about, they are giving themselves permission to cling to something, to affirm something, and then explore and have questions about other things and know that I don't have to leave the faith to have these questions. I believe a, re, a re-understanding, a re-embracing of these creedal dogma statements would do the Western church well, and it would help us reconstruct well and stay in community together well and process questions and doubts well. And so this is the Nicene Creed. And so I'm going to flip to, the Nicene Creed's a little bit longer, but I'm going to flip to the slide And I'm going to pause for a few seconds as you read that slide. And then when I read it, I would encourage you to read it with me. So are you going to read it? Because I don't want you to just to read something (laughs) blindly. Uh, Because as you see, these are we statements. This is one of the major differences between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which I love, is it moves from an I-centered statement to a we-centered statement, that we as a community affirm and cling to something together. And so take a second and read it. Now let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Now read it on your own. Now together. In one, sorry, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now together. Through him, all things were made. For us in our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. 
His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. This is outlining the faith, the faith that we are invited to cling to. In the midst of your doubts and your questions and your process of construction and reconstruction and deconstruction and how we go around this helix, this is the centrality of our faith. And we didn't make it up. We don't have the privilege or the burden of making it up. Yet that doesn't mean that we don't have our own autonomous questions and doubts and journeys and experiences. And so somehow we go through our life in our own journey, but we are going around this faith and choosing continually to say, I'm going to cling to the faith. I'm going to cling to the faith. And that doesn't mean I don't come with my questions because all of church history is full of questions. It's full of processes, full of dialogue. And my, and my promise to you, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit next week, but is that you are not asking a question today that hasn't already been asked at some point in church history. And sometimes we think, hey, I'm asking this question for the first time. No. These questions have been happening for a really, really long time. And people who are faithful worshipers of Jesus, who have followed Jesus throughout their lives, have asked these questions before you. And so it would be wise for us not only to stay in the physical today community of faith, but to also remain in the historic community of faith and say, I'm a part of something that is bigger than me. And so this is what we affirm and cling to as we come together. Now, as we move into communion, this, the communion act, the table, the Lord's Supper, is the primary piece that God has continually invited us to and and actually commanded us to do throughout history as we remember who he is, what he has done. And it is a form of worship and a reminder that we are a part of what Jesus gave to us, that we receive it. This faith is something we receive, not something we make up. But it's also done in the context of community. And so the communion table is this, this powerful place where the vertical meets the horizontal, where, yes, we have a personal relationship with God, but we recognize it's in the context of a community that we receive this and eat together. I remember my first Sunday uh, that we did communion after COVID, whatever that means. Um, for COVID, we did like church online and people would be taking communion at home in front of their TVs. Um, when we came to church and we did it together, you would be given like these plastic little cups uh, and you would give them at the beginning of the service and you would just, you would just do it all by yourself. Uh, and you wouldn't receive the, you wouldn't get the cups from anybody. You would have to, you know, go take them by yourself. You didn't want to, you know, contaminate each other, right? And so there was a whole season of doing communion that is, was completely absent from horizontal relationship. I remember our first Sunday that we said, let's hand out communion again. I came around to the communion table and I started 
crying. I've never cried that way at a communion table before uh, because I didn't realize how powerful this part of receiving community from another human being was. That was, it, it was a foundational part of faith that we had almost forgotten. And so this morning as we come around the communion table, we will get up together if you choose to. Again, it's an invitation to the communion table. There's no obligation. But we will choose to get up together. We will choose as a body to go to a table together. And there will be other human beings that give you the elements, the bread, the juice, and you receive it. And yes, you're remembering Jesus, but we realize in that process that we are remembering Jesus together. We're reaffirming the faith together. We are clinging to something together. So in light of that, I'm just going to invite you. Uh, We have a couple of songs here. Um, We got four communion tables in each of the four corners. Uh, There's no rush, but at some point in the next couple of songs, I would encourage you to go grab the communion uh, and then bring it back to your seats. uh, And then we will take that communion together at the end of the second song. Does that make sense? We'll take it together at the end of the second song. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the faith. We thank you that we are part of something, Lord, that we don't have the pressure (laughs) to figure out our faith. Um, We have the opportunity to receive the faith. And Lord, thank you that you receive us with our doubts and our questions, and we humbly come to your table today to receive. We, We come with our doubts and our questions, our mistakes. Lord, we thank you that there's no sin that is greater than your grace for us. We thank you that there is no doubt or question that is greater than your grace for us. Lord, we thank you that there's space for doubting Thomas and there's space for us. And so, Lord, we come to your table with all of these things, with all of our stories, and we just say yes. We we say yes to the gift of grace and forgiveness, the gift of relationship, not only with you, but with one another. Lord, we thank you for the joy that it is to follow you together. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, there's no rush, but in your own time, you can go to one of those four tables, and then we'll take it together at the end of the second song. Before we take the elements together, I I just want you to imagine in your mind... um, question, the doubt, uh, the disappointment, the wrestling, the hurt, you know, whatever that piece might be for you that has caused you to question or reconsider things, I want you to, to hold that thing in your mind, whatever that thing might be. Now, those are the things that we come to the communion table with. Uh, And despite whatever that thing is that we're carrying, that question, that hurt, that disappointment, whatever that thing might be, uh, Jesus offers to you his body and his blood. The body representing the sacrifice that he made because of our sins. The blood representing the covenant of relationship that he invites us to. And he's telling you that He sees the hurt. He sees the questions. He sees the disappointment. 
and he's offering this to you. Uh, He's not waiting for you to figure it all out. He's saying, this is the main thing. Come with all that stuff to my table. There's space here for you. But the question is, will you receive the body that was broken for you? Will you receive the blood that was spilled for you? Will you digest it in that way, making it the center of your being? And it doesn't mean there isn't questions, but there, there becomes this force, this faith that we grab hold of that is bigger than whatever we're bringing to the table. And so I say to you, church, collective church today, the faith that was given to us, would you, as you take the bread, remember the body of Christ that was broken for you? Would you eat this in remembrance of him? same way would you receive this the blood of Christ that was spilled for you 2,000 years ago that is just as effective today as it was then to forgive your sins and bring you into relationship with God the Father no matter what you're bringing to the table take this in remembrance of him so Father we thank you that your gift of grace is that just grace. It's not something that we earn. It's not a set of things that we got to get right. Uh, But it's a posture of humility and repentance where we receive. And we admit that we don't have the answers, that we don't have the questions, but we choose to cling to you as the most central and important thing in our lives. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a couple of really, really quick announcements uh, as we close the service. Uh, prayer teams will be available at the end of service if you want prayer for anything. Um, we have a starting point class if you're new and you, you want to get plugged into SunWest and uh, serving and connecting the community. Starting point is a great place to start. That starts on February 4th after the second service and it runs four weeks uh, that cover our know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference, uh, cover our core four. Uh, Alpha is happening. If you're wondering, uh, where can I bring these questions? We are starting Alpha. It's happening on Monday night. It's still not too late to jump in. You know, there's a couple of weeks yet where you could still jump in. Uh, you might even have questions around dogma, and you're like, Matt said I can't question dogma. That's not what I said. I'm saying to be the church means that the church is defined by that dogma, that faith. Uh, But we want to create a space where people are exploring that. And so you might not even identify with being a follower of Jesus or being a Christian. This is a great place to come and discuss and explore those questions. Maybe you're you're on that level of like different doctrines or not sure what I think about this or that. This is a fantastic place to explore that in the context of community. Uh, So we invite you to come out tomorrow night. You can sign up online. You just show up uh, happening tomorrow. I think it's at 6 o'clock and somebody, 6.30. 630. 630, uh, and that's here. And then uh, the last thing, groups. Um, our groups ministries went live today online. So to get plugged into community, I just encourage you to look at the catalog of different group offerings and uh, sign up uh, to join a group and not to do life alone, uh, to do it with other people. So uh, with that said, have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week as we wrap up Reconstruction.